Hey everybody, Chris Fafalius here. If you enjoy One Hit Thunder, which I'm assuming you do considering you're listening to it right now, I want to tell you about another great music podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. It's called Riffs on Riffs. On this season of Riffs on Riffs, hosts Toby Braswell and Joe Watson are breaking down one iconic pop song each week. Everything from Taylor Swift's Cruel Summer to Journey's Don't Stop Believin' to Naughty by Nature's OPP. Each week, they crack open the song, trace its history, decode those cryptic lyrics, and unearth the hidden gems in its musical DNA. Not only do they dive into the song's history, lyrics, and impact, they also go down some fun and oftentimes hilarious rabbit holes. So yeah, if you're a fan of One Hit Thunder, I think you'll also enjoy Riffs on Riffs. So go hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Hey everybody, I'm Chris Fafalius, and I'm the producer of Chris to Makes a Podcast and the host of the One Hit Thunder Podcast. And I'm Matt Kelly, host of Horror Movie Night and the producer slash the head of content for the Geekscape Podcasting Network. Between the two of us, we have, believe it or not, 25 years of podcasting experience, and we want to help you start your own podcast. We know podcasting, and we want to share that knowledge with you. So whether you're new to podcasting or you want some feedback on your currently active podcast, we want to help. Or perhaps you're just overwhelmed with all of the editing work. Well, we can help you with that also. You can check out our website at weknowpodcasting.com for more information. We're excited to help your podcasting dreams become a reality. It's been seven hours and 15 days Since you took your love It could be argued that Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You is one of the most famous cover songs of all time, greatly outshining the original by Prince's 1985 project, The Family. The song took O'Connor off the college radio charts and onto the pop radio charts. Sinead was quick to use her spotlight to make an important statement, even if it meant the end of her career. We're joined by another cheetah's Johnny Etzconish to talk about why Sinead O'Connor is one of the most punk rock artists of all time. all you need to make the money guaranteed and you can live off royalties forever and it makes me wonder is it just a wonder or is it one hit thunder all right johnny you're always bringing the thunder when you come on the show you picked another Absolute banger. We're going to talk about Nothing Compares to You as performed by Sinead O'Connor. This song's a jam. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where to even start with this song. A lot of people probably don't know that this song is a cover song. Yeah. Originally written by Prince, performed by The Family. The Family. Man, I love The Family. I actually did have never heard The Family. This is basically like a deep Prince cut. It was definitely not a hit for Prince, but you know, Prince writes a lot of songs and Sinead O'Connor took his song and made it way more emotional, made it way more 
I don't know. Yeah, the Prince version is funky and I don't feel as much of the emotion behind it. And uh, Sinead O'Connor made it one of the biggest songs of the year it came out, which was 1990? Yep. Yeah, 1990. Came out 1890. Prince's version came out in 1985. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he actually re-released the version in 93 with Rosie Gaines, some live version that he did after the song got popular. He was like, oh, well, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll play this song now. Yeah, apparently he, he wasn't a big fan of this song. And also, apparently, he was not a fan of Sinead O'Connor's version of the song. Believe that he actually kind of hated it, which makes no sense. Very vividly remember the music video for this song. Anyone who's seen it probably remembers. It's just her face the entire time. Well, it's actually not her face the entire time. Oh. When she is singing, uh-huh. you see her face. But anytime it goes off to just the instrumental part, it shows her just walking around. And uh. it's in... Park de Saint Cloud in Paris. Ah. And, you know, I think the music video looks like, you know, like the cheesy overlays you'd make in high school, like if you were making a video, but it was by this, you know, director, John Mayberry. And I don't know, supposedly it got good reviews, the video. But when it's just focusing on her, it's really awesome. But when it goes away from and he overlays just like, you know, very cheesy shots. It doesn't look like like a You know, it looks like a video that you just, when you're first making music videos, that's what you make. But in this video, at the end, two tears run down her cheek. And she said that it actually was real. She said when she was getting so emotional, she just went with it. Sounds like maybe Sinead O'Connor invented emo. (laughs) She may may have been the roots. She may have come before, um, I don't know. Uh, Texas is the reason or something. Yes, yeah, it was Sinead first. Sinead Emo Connor. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Uh, that's... Do we want to get into Prince now? You want to t- start with a bang. Literally. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know where else we can go. I mean, we already talked about yeah. Prince. Yeah, okay. We'll, we'll talk about Prince. So apparently Prince, like we said, did not like the song, but he invited. No, no, he didn't invite her. He summoned uh, her. Oh, he summoned. <laughs> <laughs> He's, he summoned her to his home and she went. Yeah, she went. And when she got there, he chastised her for swearing. Right. Yeah. He doesn't like when she swore in interviews and things like that. Yeah. Okay. And then there's a weird twist that, well, it gets weirder. But the first weird twist is he kept offering her soup and she kept declining it. But he kept getting his butler to come back and give her <laughs> soup. And she just didn't want the soup. But he kept insisting and kept having the butler keep bringing it to her. There must have been some deep meaning behind that. Unless he was really just messing with her. That sounds like the Teddy character on, on Atlanta would have yeah. done. If anyone has watched Atlanta, there's a really ep- really awesome episode about a character named Teddy where Donald Glover plays. You don't you couldn't recognize him, but he plays a very like Michael Jackson-ish character. Yeah, highly recommend that if you guys haven't watched Atlanta, especially that episode will just blow your mind. But to keep going with the prince, he suggested a friendly pillow fight with her. (laughs) And then he put something hard in his pillow and was hitting her with it. So she alluded to they got physical. I think that's what the physical aspect was. And then I guess she stayed there and somehow in the middle of the night she escaped. He apparently stalked her with his car, leapt out and chased her around the highway. Wow. Prince is wild. I'm a huge Prince music fan. I feel like more often than not, I'm hearing stories about Prince where I'm like, ah, what are you doing, Prince? But Sinead in herself, I don't know if confrontational seems to be the word. Controversial. Controversial, confrontational type person. I think she's pretty cool. 
You know, I think this is. Oh, I think she's more than pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. I think she's awesome right. in multiple ways. Yeah. We can get into what she's also very famous for, aside from this song. Uh, yeah, which, I mean, let's just talk about the song in and of itself. Okay. I mean, the song is incredible. Right. You know, growing up, you know, it came out in 90. You know, I was nine years old and just hearing this song as a nine-year-old, I was like, wow, this is like so emotional, so powerful. And, you know, it kind of made me feel sad, but yet I didn't know why at that time. I remember liking this song too, at least kind of, but I hadn't experienced some sort of heartbreak or something yet. So I can't really explain why, but I think it might just be the sound of it, the arrangement of it, the instrumentation that makes you feel a certain way, even if you aren't relating to the lyrics yet that you could put yourself in that space. I, I, I know you said it, but you can't get more of an emotional delivery than this song. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of, you know, maybe Whitney Houston. I will always love you is pretty emotional, but as far as like just pure emotion in singing, I think she's at the top. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this song is a perfect example of you have a songwriter. Okay. Prince wrote the song. Got to give Prince credit there. Yeah, but Neely Hooper, who was the producer and her, did a new arrangement of it. Right. So they took this song and did their own arrangement, which this arrangement is far above Prince's. Yes, I agree with that. But I'm just still saying the lyrics, the story of the song, the most of the melodies. Yes. Uh, you got to give. It's the combination of Prince, who has performed and sung so many amazing songs it's just his version of this one. It required a Sinead O'Connor to complete it. You know, you, you had the songwriter. This is the two worlds colliding, two very different styles of music. Th these two people, to think that they would have, in one way or another, a song together, you know, even if they weren't in the same room, uh, writing it and, and deciding how it should be performed. It's kind of the, the power of music or something that... It took that combination to make this hit and to resonate with so many people. But, you know, I through all my research and, you know, looking at this song, I didn't really find why she picked this song. I know she had an album out and this is on her second album. But like I didn't find anywhere. I don't know if you found anywhere where it actually says, like, why did she pick this song? Like, how did this Prince written song by the family come to her? Like, I, I don't I didn't see anything, but it's just a weird, you know, a weird thing. I mean, she's obviously an Irish singer from Ireland. So right. just, I don't know, maybe like her label brought it to her. Yeah. I have no idea. And I didn't find any information on that. A lot of times that's what would happen because like you said, she's an Irish, basically folk singer. So that doesn't mean she can't be a fan of Prince, but is she going to be digging into Prince side project deep cuts? Not necessarily. So it could be something along the lines of something like Natalie and Brulia Torn, where it was a relatively unknown song that was brought to her by somebody that saw the potential. Well, of I want to know that who that person is, because whoever that person is, is a genius to mm -hmm. say, hey, this Prince song sang by you is going to be great. Yeah. For all we know, it could be Sinead herself. So being that we didn't see anything about that anywhere, we have to assume that well, if Sinead, time. if you're listening, please post yeah. in the comments, <laughs> uh, let us know, you know, how this happened. But I guess it's called Bel Canto singing style. That's like her singing style, mm -hmm. which is like an Italian style singing. And if I had one negative thing to say about this song, 
it's that like vibrato thing she does in the uh-huh. verses that I don't necessarily like, but I would say as far as like a chorus goes, you're not going to get a more recognizable chorus than this. I don't think. Yeah. It's awesome. I, I kind of feel like the thing you're talking about is sometimes it's usually female singers. I think what I'm going to talk about this, but when they get that little bit of Kermit in their yeah. voice, it's like, that kind of thing Yeah, and sometimes. It's a, with a little bit of vibrato Kermit. It's yeah. it's that sort of thing. And it's also weird the guess what he told me part. You know, usually it's like a reverb thing, but she sings it twice. I thought that kind of stood out to me mm-hmm. as a little bit different. Usually she would sing it and then you would record it and it would just have a reverb in the background, but she sings it twice. I like that though. I like yeah, it's that. It's different. Her, I like that in her version. The lyrics they're awesome. <laughs> I know there's been many times in my life where I've been feeling this. I, It's funny. I almost feel like I've listened to this song at a points in my life after a hard relationship end where it's been 15 days. And I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> this song this song is down to the day of how long it's been. And like at some point in your life, there's got it's got to be a very rare thing that someone out there in the world couldn't look at these lyrics and hear them and be able to relate to them. Yeah. I mean, the lyrics are, you know, they're somewhat empowering too. You know, I can eat my dinner in a fancy restaurant. You know, it's kind of like I could do what I want now. I can, you know, without you being here, but at the same time, they still want them. And what Sinead said actually about that was she said that it's a sad song, but she said it's hopeful because he intends to get her back. Okay. That's That's what she said about it. That's an interesting way to look at it because yeah, like you said, it starts out, it's been seven hours and 15 days since you took your love away. I go out every night and sleep all day since you took your love away. And you have these sad parts because I think that anyone can relate to this too, where you go through these phases when you're, when your heart's broken, where you're, of course, you're sad. You're desperately sad at first. And then you have that, the, the mourning process or whatever for a while. And then you have that, like, whether it's with hanging out with friends or you're doing something you've been looking forward to or something fun where then you're like, you know what? Screw them. I'm going to be positive And, you know, now I can do whatever I want. And you have this like almost overconfidence and over feeling good. And then that fades and you're back to that sad feeling again. Yeah, you feel liberated and then you're like, oh, but I still want this person. Yeah, I mean, it's a roller coaster of going back and forth and throw some anger in there, throw some whatever. But yeah, it's relatable on that level, too. Uh, from Googling, it looks like it was Sinead O'Connor's manager who found the song and brought it to her as... A suggestion. Uh, the other tidbit that I found that I thought was funny was that the co-director of Sinead O'Connor's record label, Chris Hill, when he first heard the song, when the manager brought it to him, he began to cry. And while he was still crying, her manager called Sinead and said, Chris is crying right now. And she responded, is it really that bad of a song? <laughs> <laughs> so in the lyrics, the, the line that gets me is, tell me, baby, where did I go wrong? Like that line, the meaning of it, the delivery of it, you know, just like, I don't know, that's where it grips me, the, I think, the most in the song. And then the next line, you know, I could put my arms around every boy I see. You know, Prince, I listen to Prince's version. He says... The female version. I yeah. think he says every girl I see. Right, yeah. Um, and then I, I didn't look, but I think, you know, there's another... Does, does he say... Boy, you better try to have fun when you go to the doctor. Does he say, does the doctor yeah, call him a boy? it's changed. It's yeah. changed by gender. Yeah, for sure. The, the lyric that sticks out to me is, which I didn't know that it, that the lyric was mama in this, but all the flowers that you planted, mama, 
in the backyard all died when you went away. So you want to talk about that now yeah. is why this song touches Sinead so much mm-hmm. is that mama line. She said that's the line that gets her because when she thinks about this song, she thinks about her mom mm-hmm. and her mom died in a car crash when she's 18. Wow. So when that mama line comes, she thinks about her mom and that's why she gets really emotional singing oh, this song. Wow. But in that same thing, we're about to take a turn on her mom. Whoa. What? I don't know the story of her mom. Ready for a head-bangingly good time? Dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind, uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick, and usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work, but we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love want to love or hate yeah imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh has impacted your life uh and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week so triangulate your speakers think about jumping off the bed singing along dancing like an idiot and listen to axe grind podcast so you're we're gonna bring full circle to the SNL thing with her mom. Wow. It all starts with her mom. Well, let's let's give some background on the SNL thing first. I, I'm sure everybody knows this. We, let's just get into. It. We don't okay. even need to go background. I'm going right. to take you there. Okay, let's do it. So basically, as a kid, Sinead was abused by her mom physically. Mm-hmm. So she had a lot of trauma. You know, a, the kind of a bad childhood growing up, and then her mom died in a car crash when she was 18. Okay. So when she came out, when she did this song and she became famous, she considered herself a punk, not a pop star. Right. Like that's a direct quote from her. I'm a punk. I'm not a pop star. Right. The label told her that her hair needed to be grown out and she needed to dress more feminine. So she immediately went to a barbershop and shaved her head completely bald. Wow. She thought she looked like an alien when she did it, but she didn't care. I think she looks cool, by the oh, way. Oh, I think she looks incredible. Yeah. Like I think it's one of the best looks like... I don't know. Just her with a shaved head. I think she she'd, looks great. She'd have just looked like anyone else. You know, yeah. she'd have looked like any other person trying to be a pop star. But when you think of her, you think of the short hair. Yeah. So, you know, after she shaved her head, she got pregnant. An executive at the label called a doctor to coerce her into having an abortion. Wow. And she was like, no, I'm not having an abortion. So she actually had her son, Jake, right before the album came out. Wow. What happened was, so she got famous. And she tried to bring light to children abused, like children being abused. And mm-hmm. like everyone would shut it down. No one would listen to her. Mm-hmm. So when her mom died, 
Her mom had one picture hanging in her bedroom. Do you know what it was? The Pope. Yes. Wow. So she took that picture and she was going to, she kept it to destroy it at some point. She didn't know when. So she took this picture from her mom's wall, the Pope and kept it. So October 92, she went on that Saturday night live Mm. and she performed, which I watched. I saw you posted it. I watched uh, Bob Marley War. Right. She acapella. Perf- acapella, which is great. And it, you know, it talks a lot about, you know, inequality in race, child mm-hmm. abuse, that, that sort of stuff. It kind of, you know, um, financial inequalities. It, it, that song kind of just breaks that down. It's a really good song. She does it great. At the end of it, she rips up a picture of the Pope, right. which destroyed the world. Like everyone. Yep like could not stand it. Like, I I mean, she was just sending a message because at that time, like who was abusing children more than the Catholic religion? Yeah. Catholic church that, I mean, yeah, I'm sure the scandals have been going on since the beginning of the church, but that's when that really came to light and people were talking about it more and more. And it, I mean, it's only gotten bigger and bigger and it, you know, the whole thing's crazy, but yeah. 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 So she, you know, took that picture from her mom and ripped it up on Saturday night live to basically, you know, oppose the Catholic religion, the Catholic church. And then she said that she felt that didn't derail her career. She said it actually put it back on track because she didn't want to be this big pop star. So she kind of thought that, you know, it was a good thing that happened. She said, fight the real enemy as she did it. And I, if you watch it, you can look it up on YouTube, but when she does that, you can hear like a gasp, like somebody like gasps. And then there's no applause and she just blows out the candle and that blows out the candles in front of her. And that's the end. And it is badass. It is so badass. It's so punk rock. And it, from what I was reading, it, it really caught all of the SNL behind the scenes people off guard because, you know, they tape their, their dress rehearsals and stuff. So they had no clue that was going to happen. It kind of probably pissed off Lauren Michaels because he's why not that's just the type of guy he tends to be but apparently any time that they rerun that episode they just play the dress rehearsal version right. of the performance now right yeah wow yeah lame so, <laughs> so you know she boycotted the Grammys where she was up for record of the year wow which was awesome uh, she refused to sing the Star, Star Spangled Banner before shows because she said national anthems have nothing to do with music in general. Who's singing a Star Spangled Banner before their shows? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, who knows? She might have been playing, you know, festival or a ball game or something, something right. crazy like that. <laughs> so some bl- some backlash she got from this. Joe Pesci on Saturday Night Live threatened to smack her in his yeah. opening monologue. Fuck Joe Pesci. Later that episode, Madonna mocked her by ripping up a photo of tabloid star sex offender Joey Buttafuoco. So Madonna, of all people, who, you know, her being a sex symbol and like Madonna, we're all humans, you know, we all have our mistakes or whatever you want to call it or whatever. Madonna's had a lot of weird stuff. I kind of feel like she was one of those um, anti-lockdown people or there was something during the coronavirus that was very weird with Madonna where, where I was like, what, Madonna, what are you saying? In, in, in general, Madonna has done a lot of like good work as far as like... Yeah, that, that's why I was surprised to go yeah. against this. I mean, I guess she's Catholic. I guess all the Catholics were right. up in arms. Frank Sinatra called her a dumb broad. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure Frank Sinatra, like, yeah. these Like, Joe Pesci, you played the same role in every movie ever. Yeah, and you I'm, think you could say something about an artist. I, I don't know. So when I search Madonna coronavirus, it says... <laughs> Madonna calls the coronavirus the great equalizer in a bathtub video surrounded by roses. Wow. Wow. That's a weird, 
That's a that's a weird take, Madonna. <laughs> I don't know what she means by that. If she means, well, that's before vaccine. I would if someone would say that now, I would think that maybe they meant like, well, if you're not gonna get the vaccine and you die of coronavirus, that's your own fault. But if she meant something that sounds bad. Uh, no, there's said. another one from July. Madonna keeps controversial COVID claims, calling a misinformed leading doctor her hero. Oh, she was sharing a bunch of the frontline doctor bullshit. Oh, my God. You know what that is? That's no. like the fake video about... Plandemic. Yeah, plandemic. Oh, oh, that geez, thing. Jeez, Madonna. What the fuck? I did like some Madonna songs yeah, growing up. I really did, but I, I never really liked her as a person, though. I don't know why. She I, always rubbed me the wrong way. I mean, until this, literally until this. And if she talked shit on Sinead, I don't think that's cool either. But I liked a lot of her songs. And I thought that she did a lot of good work as far as like informing people about AIDS and, and you know, stuff for LGBTQ and, and it's just, uh, all, all, all kind of good stuff I thought she did. Yeah, she's, that's kind of, she's kind of like the 80s pop version of like all of those 80s punk guys where you're like, man, you really were on the right side of history in the 80s and now you're just fucking yeah. grumpy conservative dad suddenly. Yeah, oh, yeah I, I mean, that, that stuff's cool, but the new stuff is not not cool. Yeah, who knows so, what's up so with that. So some more backlash. She was condemned by the Anti-Defamation League. National Ethnic Coalition of Organization hired a steamroller to crush hundreds of her albums outside her record company's headquarters. Why? Why? Because the SNL thing. Wow. Yeah, they actually rented a steamroller, got her <laughs> CDs, and crushed them in front of a record I label. I strive for the day where I do something in the name of something good that crazy people want to run over my albums with like i mean the beatles happened for the i mean you know yeah they said they were bigger than god right yeah, bigger than jesus or something like yeah. that but anyway i i am in the research for this episode i have become such a bigger Sinead o'connor fan just how easy would it have been for her at that time to have this hit song and just put out five more love songs, do what the label said. Maybe, yeah. yeah. She could have towed the line and been a huge, famous pop star for a long time. But right. the cool thing was she was true to herself. Yeah. And she's a badass and she's punk rock. And, you know, she stood up for what she believed in, even though it potentially ruined her career. And it kind of did, kind of derailed her. Um, she had a book that just came out and she said, um, Anthony Kiedis of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, he alluded that they had a fling. She said that's not true. It said it was in his <laughs> in his head only. Wow. But she did uh, hook up with Peter Gabriel. Wow. Good for both of them. <laughs> that's cool. Ten years later, she was right after SNL. John Paul II acknowledged the church's role in covering up the child abuse. So she in 92, she took all the heat. Ten years later, John Paul II admitted, you know, that they were abusing children in the Catholic Church. Wow. You know, maybe not in the same press conference, but maybe like a month later, he could have had another. He could have admitted to also ruining Sinead O'Connor's career by now. <laughs> or he could have said Sinead O'Connor's awesome. He could have helped her out a little bit. But uh, and, and, you know, as far as like recent stuff she's trying to do, um, she sent a letter to Miley Cyrus after a wrecking ball video and uh, said, it's, it's not cool to be prostituted, just so you know. I mean, you could read the whole letter. It's online. Wow. Well, well I mean, ah, yeah, I, I guess I got to read it. But I think my, what Miley Cyrus does is on her own 
terms is the way I've always interpreted. I didn't, I didn't think it was someone pressuring Miley Cyrus to be wild. I think I always thought it was, I, she just seemed to me like someone who was making her own artistic choices. Yeah. I just think that there's something that she's doing that Sinead just is warning her against kind of letting her know mm. like, Hey, this isn't cool. And she's still speaking out and Sinead's recently doing interviews. I looked up, I watched many of her. She has a new song out that came out in 2020. Yeah. It, it's not very good. Yeah. You know what? It's so slow. The one thing I will say as much as I like Sinead O'Connor as a person, thinks she's interesting and I think she's punk, but I did dig deeper into her catalog and did not dig it. <laughs> uh, it. It's very, a lot of, a lot of your favorite, Johnny, a lot of acoustics, very, you know, Irish sounding, no offense to any Irish people out there. I've never been a fan of Irish sounding things. <laughs> I don't know why that is like that. I like Conor McGregor. He's Irish. Do you? Yeah. Conor McGregor is a Trump guy, but okay. Uh, <laughs> he's he's like an abusive Trump guy, but I, but if you like him, I, was, <laughs> I like him in UFC. That's okay, all. you like his fighting style. Yeah, you know that aside, that doesn't change the fact that I don't like her catalog as much. I mean, and and we might be kind of alone in that because it see she seems to be pretty critically acclaimed as far as the actual song. Nothing compares to you. Rolling Stone named it one six, number 165 on the 500 greatest songs of all time. VH1 ranked it the 10th ten, the best song of the 90s. Pitchfork named it the 37th best song of the 90s. And it was uh, covered by Chris Cordell, Aretha Franklin, and uh, some country artist named John Party. But can you really cr- give Sinead the credit for that? Because if they're cover, are they covering her cover? I don't know. Probably. Probably, actually. I was going to say, I don't think anyone's like, ooh, let's cover that family song, Nothing Compares <laughs> to You. My favorite song by the family. Hey, so- something else you didn't point out, you talked about it in your other podcast, Billboard 1990 World Single. It's a world single. Yeah. It, so. it, it's Billboard's 1990 World Single. Number one. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was... It's like, a gigantic song. So in 1990, sure. it was the most popular song in the world, according to Billboard. Wow. You know what else was on that list in 1990? Because I have the list of the five world singles no, of tell that me. year. So it was Sinead O'Connor at number one. Maybe Madonna was salty because she was in number two with oh, Vogue. Oh, that explains a lot. Uh, number three was Vanilla Ice's Ice Ice Baby. Number four was MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This. Wow. And my personal favorite on the list, Roxette's It Must Have Been Love. Wow, you like it better than nothing compares to you. I love that song. Yeah, I like it too. But yeah, I would never, four of those don't shock me, but I would have never bet money that Roxette would be the fifth (laughs) biggest selling single in the world that year. It's crazy that you have a song like Nothing Compares to You as one of the biggest songs and kind of right in the middle of Ice Ice Baby and You Can't Touch This. Like you can't get two different songs that Nothing Compares to You and You Can't Touch This. And they both have the letter U as <laughs> in the song title as the U. Well, also, like, I mean, I guess Roxette doesn't fully fall into this, but, like, you've got four dance songs, but the number one song that's outselling all of them is a song that you absolutely can only slow dance to, if even that. You kind of just take the song in. Right. Yeah, I think I middle, in middle school, I definitely slow danced to this song. Yeah, I mean, at least this makes more sense than slow dancing to Tears in Heaven that used to play for people to slow dance at our at our middle school dances. <laughs> yeah, it was always uh, Leonard Skinner's Free Bird was the last mm. song they played at the middle school dance. Weird song to slow dance to, but uh, okay. Yeah, this was 1990, by the way. Uh, this song hit number one April 21st, 1990. That's three days before I turned 10 years old. It's definitely a jam. 
And it definitely, I think, stands the test of time. There's nothing that sounds dated about this song to me now when no. I hear it. You know, you listen to Ice Ice Baby or You Can't Touch This. You're like, oh, yeah, that sounds like 1990. But This song would be a banger today. Yeah, absolutely. And I've noticed from being on this podcast, listening to this podcast, I love One Hit Wonders. Like there's, I mean, I guess a lot of people do, but some of my favorite songs are One Hit Wonders. I mean, I was on the Duncan Sheik episode. Mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. You know, we cover in my band, Another Cheetah, we cover Super Drag, Sucked Out. Yeah. So sure. I'm just saying these are like some of our favorite songs are one hit wonders. So, you know, I just want to say that, you know, I appreciate the genre. Nice. Yeah, I do too. And I think, I wonder, there has to be a way to figure this out. I wonder what percentage of artists and bands that have a hit are one hit wonders you know of all the songs that get put out in the past whatever 50 years how many of those artists went on to have more hits in careers and how many of them were just one hit wonders which way does it i bet you there's more one hit wonders than there are it probably it it, i think if you're focusing on the billboard mainstream chart which Mm -hmm. is the thing that causes so much controversy in our facebook page but you really do have to kind of focus on that because like you know a band like chevelle I could maybe name a song that I've heard by Chevelle, but if you look at the modern rock charts, they have like 30 hit song, like top 10 charting modern rock songs. Same thing was like, I always use Billy Ray Cyrus as an example. Like most of us only know Achy Breaky Heart, but if you listen to country in the nineties, he had like at least eight top 10 hits. Like, should have been me. Yeah. You no, know, should have been me. That's a good <laughs> Billy Ray song. I mean, actually, is, is there something to be said about the one hit wonders you know, like you're saying Billy Ray Cyrus, he has all these hit songs, but I mean, the one hit wonder, you know, maybe the rest of their catalog in some cases are good, mm-hmm. but you know, a lot of bands have tons of hits that maybe we don't think are hits. Yeah. It, well, know? that's the thing. It's that crossover. It's the, <laughs> Chris always makes fun of me when I say this, but like the test, the litmus test for me a lot of time is like, does my mom know any other song by this band, but this one song that was massive? Like Vanilla Ice is kind of a one-hit wonder because I don't think my mom would know the ninja rap or play that funky music. Right. Well, yeah, it, it is. It this is uh, a matter of opinion, and it's mostly me and Matt have to be like, uh, or m- mainly Matt actually. He's make he's making the calls. Like he he's let some slide that I'm like. Eh. And know. Matt, I think Chris makes fun of you for a lot of stuff. No, I mean, you do a good job. You you walk the line and then somebody somebody has to make the decisions because I, I don't know. There are some of these that I would consider no hit wonders that we've done episodes about. But there's also some that seem like they have more hits than they don't. And comparing this to the Duncan Sheik episode I was on, I've learned so much more about her. I respect her so much more. I Not that the Duncan Sheik, I, I didn't, he didn't have this this much information and wasn't just so like groundbreaking, you know, punk rock, just person who wanted to bring down, you know, the, you know, bring down the big Catholic church and just, I mean, I just think it's cool that if you have that platform to use it for what you believe in and not just to make money, you know, because most people are going to choose the money and the fame and to use that to speak out like, I, I like to believe, and my bandmates might not like to hear this, <laughs> but I like to believe that if we had a hit, that I say what I want. No. I say <laughs> I say what I want, whether it's on the internet or whatever. I, I put it out there, but you know, I'm I'm just me. You know, I'm not some super famous dude. But if I was, 
I, you better believe I'm going to be. You'd be like out. Tom Morello. I'd put Tom Morello to shame <laughs> with how much I'd be talking about stuff. I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm just saying that uh, I think I always have a lot of respect for people that do that, and I also agree with you, Johnny, that doing this show there uh, the perfect example I can think of is songs that I didn't really care about, but then I learn about them and I start diving into them, and then I realize I like the song by the end of the episode. It's like Dishwalla. So. Yeah, it's uh, it's cool how learning about these artists can do, and sometimes it can do the opposite. You know, I don't know if that's happened yet, but I'm I'm sure you could really like a song and find out that someone's a real shithead and then not like it Michael anymore. Jackson. Oh, that's a that's a that's uh, we'll R. Say, Kelly. Oh, those are those are whole other. Episodes. And I, and and I love Trapped in the Closet. I thought it was one of the greatest things ever. And now I can't even watch I mean, it. Yeah. It was an amazing, like just opera, like yeah. whatever you ca- categorize that thing is. Just it was it was incredible. It's very easy for artists to ruin their legacy, especially to me, because the second I mean, there's people can be wild and crazy, and that doesn't bother me. And people could do things like Sinead does, where it's important and it's meaningful and that's only going to make me like a more but when somebody does something racist or abusive or i don't know there's just a lot of lines that if you cross for me personally if you cross that line i can no longer separate the art from the artist and i'm like i'm not listening see to i can listen to kanye west but i don't listen to michael jackson kanye west hasn't crossed my line but michael jackson has as soon as somebody supports trump they cross my line i can't do it i can't do it it yeah, sucks i mean I, I can do it still with music. I, I envy you. And UFC. <laughs> I think that's that's where we should leave this. I, it's obvious that... Uh, thunder. Thunder all the way yeah. with uh, Sinead. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. This has been One Hit Thunder. One Hit Thunder is hosted by Chris Fafalios of the bands Punchline, Pack, and Another Cheetah, and produced by Matt Kelly of Geekscape.net. Underneath me, you're hearing Lucky by Another Cheetah. If you have any interest in podcasting, visit weknowpodcasting.com for how Matt and Chris can make your show sound as professional as possible. Let us know your thoughts on the show by emailing us at onehitthunderpodcast at gmail.com, and make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app. Tune in next week for another episode of One Hit Thunder. You should be so, you should be so fucking lucky to have someone like me. You should be so, you should be so fucking lucky to have someone like me. Ready for a head-bangingly good time? Dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast.
Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.